Welcome back to hour number two of Sports Talk. I'm Jimmy Himes along with Vince Ferrar. Uh, and this is uh, Vince's Hour, 4 to 5 on Tuesday, brought to you by Waters Equipment. Uh, Vince, tell us more about Waters Equipment. Yeah, they're, they're great. They've been in business for 48 years. And you're talking about family-owned business and two locations in Maryville and just an unbelievable work uh, for whether it's residential or for your workplace. Just so much in terms of big equipment and, and just a, a, an unbelievable company that has proven to have great success in the area. So really proud and appreciative that they – uh, our sponsor in the hour, and uh, I can spread the word about uh, all the great business that they're doing here in the area that can potentially help a lot more of our listeners. All right. Uh, here is uh, the reason we can say that offenses have absolutely exploded in the SEC and all over the country. Okay. For one, Kyle Trask is the National Offensive Player of the Week by throwing for 356 yards and six touchdowns and a win over Arkansas. But he can't win that alone in the SEC. Matt Corral at Ole Miss shared it with him. He broke the Ole Miss single-game passing record of 513 yards as the Rebels beat South Carolina and helped get Will Muschamp fired. Uh, Corral was 28-32, 513 yards, four touchdowns. He ran for another. His 533 total yards, second in school history to Archie Manning's 540 in 1969 and a 33-32 loss to Alabama. Okay, so... Then I'm scrolling down, and I'm looking for this guy that had a great game. And so he's not the offensive player of the week, but surely he's a freshman of the week. Well, he went to a linebacker at Kentucky named J.J. Weaver. Four tackles, tackle for loss, pass breakup, and Kentucky's went over Vanderbilt. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute. So now I will tell you this. I saw where he was a freshman, then somebody else said he was a junior college transfer, so i got to check this. But nowhere anywhere is there mention of Kevin Harris of South Carolina all he did was run for 243 yards and five touchdowns in a win over Ole Miss, and he doesn't even get honorable mention <laughs> in terms of SEC. So how about that? <laughs> well, it lost to Ole Miss. Yeah, lost I'm sorry, to lost Ole Miss. Miss. 59 yeah. to 42, right. yeah. And that may have been the deciding factor, Jimmy. <laughs> You know, and just like a lot of national awards, they're going to give them to the win to you know the teams that have the greatest success. So that he may have just gotten you know outvoted because uh, well, you know his team lost the game. Well, and here's the thing too. So I just I just scrolled it up there. Uh, one place I saw where he was a redshirt freshman, and then I just uh, called up his bio, and they called him a sophomore. Uh, he played as a freshman. He didn't play much, but he played some as a freshman. So I don't know if they appeal for another year for him as a redshirt, but it could be that he's classified as a sophomore instead of a freshman, even though I saw where he was listed as a redshirt freshman. But anyway, that's that was an incredible game that he had, not to get a whole lot of mention uh, with the with the SEC. And of course, as you said, it, it is a it wasn't a loss. All right, uh, Tennessee had some players made available to us. Uh, first, we'll talk about Brandon Kennedy. Uh, Vince, we knew the story that Peyton Manning actually called to inform Kennedy via Zoom that Kennedy was one of 12 national finalists for the Campbell Trophy that goes to a scholar-athlete. Kennedy said he had never talked to Peyton Manning before. How about that for your first conversation with uh, with Peyton Manning? Yeah, and you could tell that it definitely meant a lot to him. And 
Um, you know, just the connection to that award that he wasn't aware of either. Uh, that's that's special. I mean, guys get nominated for awards in advance as finalists, but when you have that kind of connection with a legendary VFL and you get a chance to to talk to him, that that's pretty cool. And that was that was evident with uh, Brandon Kennedy today. Kennedy also said playing against Albert is definitely special for him since he grew up in Wetumpka, which he said is about 30 minutes away from Auburn. He had narrowed his schools to Alabama, Auburn, and Clemson. He picked Alabama so he could learn from Nick Saban. Uh, He also, and you asked this question, with the many college games being canceled or delayed, does that heighten the players' awareness to follow pandemic protocols? And what did he say about that? Uh, well, he said absolutely, and you know there, you have to you have to be aware and think about those things and hold players accountable. The, the thing I wonder, Jimmy, and part of the reason why I wanted to ask is I, I'm not so much worried about the guys that play every game doing the right thing, guys that are important, veterans, things like that. I, I worry about two groups. I worry about the freshmen that maybe haven't matured or still have some, uh, you know, naivety to them that, you know, hey, the air of invincibility that, hey, you know, I'm okay. I'm not playing a whole lot anyway, so I can go to this party or do this. And the other ones is is the walk-ons and the players that don't play. Uh, How much are are those players doing all the right things just like everybody else? Um, and so they need to have, because they're a part of the team and they're around everybody else, they need to have the same accountability that all the starters and star players do. Uh, and I, I wonder if uh, how much, one, those guys are, are, are doing the right thing, and two, who, who's making sure they are? Are, are they like not even, are they just ignored on whether they're doing the right thing or not because they're not starters or first-team guys or on scout team? I think in this kind of situation, the, everybody needs to be held just as equally res, uh, uh, accountable because of what's at stake. And it's not just for Tennessee, but I, you know, you just wonder how much that that is the case around the country, where the players that test positive maybe aren't the starters. It's someone that doesn't play and just doesn't think about the the ramifications if they do cut a corner here and there. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Absolutely. Uh, I also asked um, Kennedy if he could put, put his finger on why Tennessee's having so many second-half woes. They've been outscored in the four-game losing streak, 88 to seven in the fourth quarter. Uh, I'm sorry, in the second half, 61 to seven in the third quarter, and he basically boiled it down to just execution. Of course, it seems like it's more than that, but he said he just said execution was a primary culprit. Um, Gosh, Jimmy, if I hear execution one more time, like what I what I you're all for it. This is, they took y'all for it, <laughs> Yeah, the, the uh, John McKay with the classic yeah. words about the Tampa Buccaneers. I was there at the time. I remember that. Um, but, uh, but you know, like that's what everybody says. Like the coaches say it about the players. The players say it about the players. It's like it's, mm-hmm. an, it's an easy crutch, and, and everybody throws it out there as just kind of a general thing they can point to, and everyone just moves on. And, you know, it, it's, it's up there with – like basketball players saying they need to be aggressive. Like that's their go-to. You know, like that's what everything comes down to. You ask them about game plan X's and O's, whatever. They're like, well, it's just about being aggressive. Like so, like execution in football is right up there with 
with uh, aggressive in basketball is one of those crutch words that everybody uses that just kind of throws water on the fire. Um, I also asked Kennedy, what's uh, after the Tennessee's two and four start, disappointing start, what's the motivation? He said to give my all for Tennessee. He said about a year ago he decided to return to Tennessee, earn another degree, be a team leader, and help the team be successful. So that was his uh, response to that. Uh, Beelis Jones, Southern Cal transfer, uh, said playing at Tennessee has been a great experience. He talked about the bond that he and wide receiver coach T. Martin have. Uh, T. Martin and Jones, both from Mobile, Alabama. And then Martin was the receivers coach at Southern Cal when Jones was there. Jones said there's nothing like playing in the SEC. It was a dream come true since he was a kid. Uh, he said that the SEC is like a JV for the NFL and that the SEC players are a lot bigger, stronger, faster, more physical than players in the Pac-12. I'm sure folks in the Pac-12 were delighted to hear that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> those quotes have been run back to USC and everyone else in the league. I don't know that the SEC has ever been described as the JV of anything. Um <laughs> Now, like minor leagues, you've heard that analogy right. uh, before for the NFL, but JV, that just, that just has – I know what he meant, obviously, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, uh, it, if any league is going to prepare you for the league, it's, um, it's the SEC. So it's interesting that he's been thinking about that for a long time. Ask if he might return next year. He said he's focused on this season. He's not looking ahead. Uh, but I would think – I just wonder how many players are thinking about coming back. I mean, we've seen a whole lot of players already opting out seven games into the season in some cases. So I just wonder – I, I got to think players are thinking about it, even though they don't acknowledge that. Uh, but I wonder what he's what he's looking at, whether or not he'd want to come back. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think a lot of it, Jimmy, will come down to one out of the season and two, how welcomed back are they? I mean, some of these coaches yeah. in their exit meetings may just lay it out for some kids that they're ready to move on from, especially if they have recruits coming in at their position and they think they can upgrade. Uh, I think they're going to sort of paint the picture for them and, and draw the map on, on where to go. Um, and then if, if they are welcomed back, then I think each individual player will have their own decision. What are their – what are their pro prospects? What what's their family situation? Uh, is there another place that they can go to if it's their final year, and they can move on as a grad transfer, or uh, is is it a place where they will cherish one final year of college football and they feel good about the future of next year? I, I think it's going to be all over the place. You're certainly going to see attrition, and I think movement from school to school. But I think it's it, a lot of it will will depend on on all those different factors. I think. Uh, and then Jones said of the young receivers, Malachi Whiteman, that he sees a lot of potential. He's a really good basketball player. He said that if he can high point the ball consistently, he can play in the league and make a lot of money for a long time. That's a pretty good compliment. It is, and uh, I, I I was the one that asked him that question to kind of give a little scouting report on each of the players. I think are, are great about you know, just giving you little nuggets on their perspective on on their teammates when they're willing to do it. Some are, don't want to speak about guys individually. They'll just talk in general. The veterans do that. Um, and, and so he went, he talked about Weidman, he talked about Hyatt. Um, and you're right, with that kind of potential, that's exciting. That was the, the best 
uh, pass that Harrison Bailey has thrown when he came in his first stint uh, was to Wyman down the sideline. I would love to see more of him in this game, Jimmy Pruitt's been talking about you know the wide receivers getting more uh, reps and comfort and all that. He's kind of the next guy I think on the radar that we could see have an elevated role in among the wide receiving group. And he kind of cut it off there. He didn't get to you know Callaway and Holiday and and D Beckwith, who I, I guess has been given some looks at, at running back uh, as well. So um, yeah, uh, it's a great compliment. Uh, with Hyatt, uh, liked his uh, speed, his route running, and um, said that he's got a, a, a lot of ability. So, um, and, and I think that's, I think he's shown that. That's been evident so far as well. One other quick thing on Jones. I asked him to compare Los Angeles and Knoxville, and he says, well, L.A. is a busy city that doesn't sleep always. There's, it doesn't <laughs> sleep. There's always something going on. So, right. um, yeah. And uh, certainly he mentioned the population base. But he talked about happy to be in Knoxville, six and a half hours from Mobile. His family can come see him play, and this feels like home to him. But L.A. is a different animal. And he said that he was definitely in culture shock coming out of high school when he went to Los Angeles. I could see that. So, anyway, those are comments from Vilas Jones. Uh, Vince, I want to ask you about this. And uh, it it happened at the Kentucky game. They lost a very popular Offensive line coach, who's now SEC player, John Schlarman, passed away. He'd battled cancer. So to start the game, uh, Kentucky lines up with uh, 10 men, and they leave the left guard spot vacant, which is what Schlarman played when he was at Kentucky, and they take delay of the game. Vanderbilt declined the penalty. And then Landon Young comes in at left guard. He wore number 65 which is Slarman's number, and then uh, he wore that in honor of Slarman. That's not his regular number. And then uh, Kentucky went on to win the game. What what was your thought about that gesture by Kentucky to start that game against Vanderbilt? Yeah, classy. I mean, it, we've we've heard of, about you know his uh, his health struggles for a while and his battle, and um, you know I, uh, that Tennessee game. Uh, you know, I believe was his last game that he ended up coaching. Yeah. And, um, you know, just uh, just super classy by Kentucky, and it's no surprise. And then for Vanderbilt to decline the penalty as well. Um, you know, we, we've seen that a little bit in, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, basketball uh, for different gestures, things like that, The you know, the backcourt violations, different things for, for, for different reasons. But, um you know, just very well done by Kentucky handling just a, a crushing situation, so difficult for many uh, in that way. And um, got, I'm sure, and got the W, I'm sure that was uh, really meaningful for, for Kentucky in the end as well. Uh, also, Kentucky ended up with four people honored. That may be a, a school record. They had the uh, offensive lineman was Landon Young, offensive lineman of the week. The freshman was linebacker J.J. Weaver. Special teams was kicker Chance Poor. Defense, Jamin Davis. He's the guy that ran interception 85 yards against Tennessee for a touchdown. He had 15 tackles against Vanderbilt. So Kentucky with four players that were honored. Uh, and certainly we're holding our best to see how many games will be played in the SEC this week. Uh, haven't had your take uh, on our show about the eight Tennessee football assistants that declined to take a 10% pay cut. 
Everybody in the athletic department that was a contract employee who was asked to take a pay cut did so. Uh, that included head coaches. It did not include Jeremy Pruitt, who delayed his uh, $400,000 uh, raise to next year. Your thoughts on the eight assistants declining to take a pay cut? Well, despite what Jeremy Pruitt said on Monday, and I thought he handled it about as well as you could, considering that story came out that was clearly very embarrassing to uh, the the program uh, and raised a lot of questions. I thought Pruitt handled it as well as he could, one, in addressing it out of the gate, two, saying that Blake Topmeyer's story was factual and not acting like it was some sort of hit piece or, uh, you know, just deny, 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 like a lot of coaches would. And then, you know, fielding questions about it and saying that, hey, the story, the final chapter uh, hasn't been written, that it's still fluid. Uh, I think I think that those were all the right things to to say after the fact. Now, that part of it, Jimmy, to me is damage control. That's the way it looks to me. That they've been embarrassed, and uh, the reaction story came out. Maybe they weren't thinking that it, that the info would come out, and now taking a whole lot of heat. Now they're maybe reconsidering and and trying to do something. And Jeremy Pruitt also mentioned trying to help out the at will employees in there and not breaking any NCAA rules. So uh, that that was you know that that's something else. But that's separate than the eight assistants. But the bottom line is, Jimmy, even if Pruitt handled it well on Monday and even if the coaches uh, end up doing something at this point, for them to make that decision from the get-go um, you know, as a group, uh, I think it's tone deaf and it really raises a lot of questions about what's going on inside those walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe none of those questions are the are bad. There's bad answers to, and it's necessarily the worst. But it does make you wonder what they the coaches feel about their futures, and what they think about the University of Tennessee. Uh, you know, Brandon Kennedy was talking about he wants to give his all for Tennessee. Um, if coaches aren't willing to do that for the the university when pretty much everybody in this country and many around the world have been impacted by this in some form or fashion, uh, for them to not take the, the have that understanding and and if nothing else, do it for the university, how can you expect all of your players to give their all for Tennessee if the coaches that are supposed to be setting the examples are not? And that, to me, would raise a question on whether they are all in right now versus looking out for their own best interests. So um, I, I just don't understand their their thinking on that, especially when you get to the higher-paid coaches. Um, and, and so it, you, you just wonder where are they thinking about getting fired? Are they thinking that, um, you know, they're the – you know, what their situation is more important than the university. I mean, just so many things that make you wonder about what's going on inside Tennessee and the connection between the coaches and the players. Uh, It was, it's absolutely alarming. And I don't know if just giving back before the end of the year, if that solves 
everything if there are those issues, but it, it raises a lot of questions, Jimmy. I think that even if some of them uh, come back and say, hey, you know what, I didn't give this enough thought, I'm going to take my cut, I, I think still there will be some people that will mm, maybe hold a grudge against them or think it's insincere. And so I, right. I guess what I'm saying is I think to a certain degree the damage has been done, even if they try to rectify yeah. it. Let me ask you, one? Jimmy, because, yeah. yeah, I do. I agree with you. Let me ask you. Philip Fulmer had, you know, he had a quote in that in Blake's story that said that, you know, not everyone, we thank those that that decided to, you know, help the university, blah, 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 just to paraphrase. Um, that, how do you think Tennessee views that? I mean, is that in uh, Philip Fulmer? You know, especially for the guys that, I guess there's three of them, two of which said no, that have their contracts expiring. Is that something that you think could be held against them? And even if Pruitt says, I want to keep this guy, that maybe they say they say no. How does, how does UT look at it from their standpoint uh, for those, those coaches in the future? Well, I don't know how they look at it in the future. Obviously, I think Fulmer was ticked when you see, unfortunately, some did not choose to do this for their own reasons. So you right. know he's not happy about that. Uh, I do wonder about uh, if any of those coaches, if all of a sudden this thing gets turned around and these coaches are saying, hey, I'd like a raise and an extension, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think uh, the answer is no. <laughs> so right. I don't think they've helped themselves in that regard. I don't think you all of a sudden have to turn around and fire all of them, though. I don't think that necessarily makes a lot of sense either. So I just think well, it puts them in a position where you're not going to be getting a raise in the future regardless of what happens with this team. And something that you, that, uh, you guys talked about on the sports source that I think was spot on is the fact that the coaches, you know, maybe depending on when this first happened and, um, it, you know, if, it, if they had the final decision and they hadn't come to a decision until recently after Jimmy Brumbaugh was let go, that they're paying for Jimmy Brumbaugh to be let go and the the remaining money that they owe him and then in essence replacing him rather than giving back to the university. So that decision by Jeremy Pruitt kind of takes away from what the university was trying to save in dollars. Yeah, it does. Uh, we actually broke the story about Tennessee announcing the pay cuts and, mm -hmm. um, and then Tennessee came out with a release after that in regard to what they were doing. So, uh, I do think there had been some discussion with them, maybe going back a few weeks, but uh, the the decision for them to make was somewhere around November the 1st, I think, is when they had asked them to to, to declare. And um, so I think that's the way that went down. Uh, anyway, events appearance during the 4 o'clock hour brought to you by Waters Equipment. Let's go to the phones where Bobby is our next caller. Hello, Bobby. Hey, uh, I was listening Sunday to to the sports uh, on that sports talk show, and he was talking about things that the coaches say. And I was remembering uh, when Pruitt first came to Tennessee, he talked about what he needed to turn it around. He said twenty five better players. Is his roster better now than then? Um, it's um, I think it's a little bit better. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as good as Butch Jones' third-year roster. 
when Butch, we, uh, John Pennington brought it up, we went and did an analysis by position, which would you rather have, the Butch Jones position units, uh, his third year, or Pruitt's, and the only one that we gave maybe an edge to Pruitt was the offensive line, even though I don't think it's played to the level I thought it would. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think he's improved it as much as he needs to uh, because I don't see I don't see hardly any all-SEC caliber players on this football team. Vince, how do you see that? Well, no, I agree with you You're, because not only does this year's team in year three uh, not make the cut in terms of comparison to year three for Butch Jones, but as you guys laid out on the Sports Source Sunday, Jeremy Pruitt's third year doesn't look third year third team doesn't look improved from his first team, right. which was littered with Butch Jones players. Now, to to Pruitt and the staff's credit, last year their turnaround you could point to player development, many of which were Butch Jones players that didn't fully develop under him, but did last year. However, you don't see that this year. It is hard to find players that have gotten better, uh, either Butch Jones players or Jeremy Pruitt players, from last year to this year. So I I think both of them are are alarming. And when Jeremy Pruitt was talking about catching up with Alabama, uh, you know, that's another – that's more evidence that, you know, maybe he has guys of stature that he likes – in terms of players, so his viewpoint, maybe he's got better dudes. But just like the just like the scoreboard, it's about the results. And I don't I don't see where the results are. The year three Pruitt starting lineup is or roster is better than year one of Pruitt, much less year three of Butch Jones. Well, what's, what do you think the reason is that they're doing worse this year than the? The advice to I think a part of it is uh, they have not gotten better at quarterback play. I think that's uh, one of the issues. The other part of me is um, I, I wonder if it was a little bit of fool's goal, Vince, from this perspective. Tennessee won the last six last year. They won the first two this year. They didn't really beat anybody that was ranked, right? So. Yeah. Were we were we kind of fooled into thinking this team was better than it was? Um, but that still doesn't explain you getting blown out by Kentucky, does it? And losing to Arkansas no. with the first-year rebuilding program. Right, right. And look, I, you know, there's plenty of of doubters that said, well, Tennessee said just what you mentioned. Well, Tennessee hadn't beaten anybody, so I'm not impressed. But the, Tennessee was still doing things that they weren't doing before towards the end of the Butch Jones era and in year one of Pruitt. And they were they were winning games that they would even lose during those that, that three year stretch. So I, I it, it was still improvement, but maybe it it didn't have the long standing value and and declare declaration of the program direction that maybe it it did seem with that winning streak. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, Okay. thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. Hey, Vince, I want to get your take on this. Um, the NCAA is looking at playing the tournament in a semi-bubble situation, everybody locating in Indianapolis uh, rather than going to eight first-round sites, four second-round sites, and then a Final Four. 
they're going to look to try to have all 68 teams in one location, uh, quarantine them or protect them, I guess, as best they can in a bubble and play the games there. Do you favor that idea, or would you rather them use uh, eight sites than four sites than a Final Four site? Well, even though that sounds like a massive undertaking, Jimmy, um, and and it is college students, I would imagine that that would be safer and more reliable than than having to hope that various mini bubbles around the country are all executed properly and you could do the same thing. Um, My guess is the one location of consistency and having an over-the-top, you know, assurance of best possible of health and safety and quarantine and things like that, uh, I, I would have a, at first thought, more of a trust level on that than the mini bubble situations around around the country. But again, you know, not knowing the specific logistics of how they would do it or or whether they could pull it off, I don't know. But the NTA would have to put in a whole lot of money, like the NBA did with their bubble. Well, are they willing to do that to make sure they don't lose the NCAA tournament? Uh, for a second consecutive year, my guess is yes. So because of those stakes, I would I would expect that to be better executed than you know who knows who's running and and in charge of all of the mini bubbles around the country. How do you view it? I think it is the not the greatest situation, but it's the best alternative to a difficult situation. So I would favor right. it. I think you would it would be harder to go all over to the country in these different venues than it would be to try to locate them in one spot. We did see a measure of success with the NBA, and so I think that is the best of a hard and difficult situation. So I would favor it. Yeah, and I wonder, Jimmy, if the NCAA, because we're talking about talking about non-professionals and they are amateurs and you know what what about the classwork and and things like that and to maybe make sure that they're you know whether it's lawsuits or or uh you know or whatever that you that maybe the NCAA has to find some extra little some extra perks to make sure that these kids and their families are going to be comfortable with their players in those bubble situations that normally is a part of what professionals do. Well, what does the NCAA do to sort of sweeten the pot to make sure that this is going to be okay for everyone participating? And and then what are the opt-outs? Are, are elite players going to say, no, I'm not doing that, and then skip yeah. the NCAA tournament? They're going to have to find a way to make it enticing for players to want to participate. The classwork, to me, I don't know that that's going to be a hard one. Most everybody's taking classes by – Zoom, aren't they? So just, yeah, just, just make sure the Wi-Fi works. Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> make sure, make right. sure the Wi-Fi doesn't Pay get overloaded Wi-Fi. with all yes, the teams right. there. That's right. The New Orleans Saints suffer an injury to Drew Brees. He's got uh, not only collapsed lungs, he's got five broken ribs. It's believed that he broke three the week before. He broke two more in the game against San Francisco. He is out an undetermined amount of time. He's going to have a second opinion to see how long he might be out. Uh, the Saints last year when they lost Breeze went 5-0 and with Teddy Bridgewater. Is there any chance they can have a winning streak 
with Jameis Winston and or Tyson Hill, Vince? Well, my first my first thought is no, <laughs> because of what we've seen from Jameis Winston. What we haven't seen is Taysom Hill for an extended period of time. Now, to go five and zero, Jimmy, the remaining schedule is home to the Falcons, at the Broncos, at the Falcons, at the Eagles, and then Game Five is home to the Kansas City Chiefs. And even beyond that, Jimmy, is the rep to, to wrap things up after that, it's versus the Vikings and then at the Panthers. So looking at that, there are two difficult games in, in my – well, actually, no. The, the Vikings are approved. The Chiefs is the only one right there that I think, without Drew Brees, will be very difficult for the Saints to win. I think even without – Drew Brees, if Winston can, if they can manage him, or if he cannot be the turnover turnstile that he was with uh, with Tampa Bay, um, or a mixture of him and Taysom Hill, I think they can make their way and manage their way through the rest of of those games. the The Saints are on a six game winning streak. So it's not just that Drew Brees is lighting up the world. It's that their defense has played better. They've given up 16 total points the last two weeks. And they, you know, were, have improved in a lot of areas. They're getting more out of the wide receivers. Uh, so I, I think their offensive line has played better. So I, I think all of those things are leading to them being better equipped and it just puts more on your boy Sean Payton. I know you you're you know, you scratch your head and you're frustrated with him at times, Jimmy, but the only game there that I would put an L next to is the Chiefs and then, you know, six games maybe you know, they're gonna they might get upset here or there, but you know, if they go five and one in those games or four and two, uh, I don't know if it wins in the division, but you're you're still gonna be you know, up there as a high seat in the uh, in the NFC. So that's yeah. kind of the way I would look at it for, for them. I think they can win those next four we're talking about with Atlanta in there twice and Denver, et cetera. So I think they could do that. Beyond that, it gets tough. Yeah. I, I have more right. trouble with Sean Payton's in-game decision and game management than I do preparing a game, pre- preparing for a game. Mm-hmm. I thought he did a really good job with Bridgewater the running attack and the way he handled that. Heck, they went to Seattle and beat Seattle with Teddy Bridgewater. So I, I like that aspect of his game. He may be pretty darn good with his back against a wall like this. So we shall see. All right. 